So the reading's taken from Luke chapter 7, starting at verse 36, which is on page 1036 of the Pew Bibles. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, so he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume and she stood behind him at his feet weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. <clears throat> Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he cancelled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt cancelled. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not pour oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has, who has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Do keep that um, passage from the Bible open. Over the last four Sunday evenings at uh, St Mary's, we've been looking at barriers that people might face in embracing Jesus Christ and the Christian faith. And the barrier that we're considering this evening is the one where someone has got to the point where they feel so rubbish that they just don't think they could possibly be able to be accepted by Jesus and by Christians. They think that whatever they've got up to is just too awful. When I was growing up, there was a girl in the next road. I can't remember what her name was, which is probably just as well. Her uh, dad lectured at the nearby teacher training college and put up Labour Party posters at election time. Now, I've got vague recollections of her at primary school. I suspect she was quiet, probably well-behaved, and slightly nerdy. Now, we both passed our 11 pluses, and so every day for the next seven and a half years, we would be transported off to Canterbury to our separate grammar schools on separate buses. We were hermetically sealed from girls from the age of 11. 
So, anyway, I heard about her again when I was in the sixth form. And when some of the lads, that's the kind of um, party-going, drug-sampling brigade, um, began bragging about their sexual conquests with her. Now, I've no idea what turned this uh, girl into a sixth-form nymphomaniac with a growing reputation as an easy lay. Clearly, upon reflection, she was uh, searching for intimacy, to be loved unconditionally by a bloke. It's a natural desire, but she was going about it in a way that was not going to work. How did she feel? Well, I don't know. But uh, I tried to get some insight this week, and I forgot what I actually Googled, but what I ended up with was the lyrics um, of what were billed as the 20th best scorned women's songs ever written. <laughs> I thought that would give me empathy. Songs by the likes of Adele, Beyoncé and Amy Winehouse. And I thought, oh, and if you're of um, a certain age, you were around in the 70s, Carly Simon. You know, you're so vain. She was obviously done the dirty to by Warren Beatty, if that means anything to you. But, yeah, they have a rough deal. Now, I'm sure, having read that, she must have felt a mixture of anger, rage, revenge, used, damaged, and, as far as future relationships would go, wary, suspicious, untrusting. She must have felt rubbish. When a woman has sex with a man, a chemical called oxytocin is released into her system. Oxytocin is, I'm told, a neuropeptide most commonly associated with pregnancy and breastfeeding. It seems to act as a human superglue and helps a woman bond with her infant. The chemical also helps her bond with her lover during sex. It, does, it also means that for a woman, when she has sex with a man, it fools her body and mind into believing she can trust him even if she barely knows him. And scientific studies suggest that if a woman has multiple sexual partners, this will lower her levels of oxytocin, which in turn can inhibit her ability to bond with any future partner. Researchers have concluded that people who have misused their sexual faculty and become bonded to multiple persons will diminish the power of oxytocin to maintain a permanent bond with an individual. It's like taking a piece of uh, strong packing tape and applying it to a box. Leave it alone and it will hold that box together for decades and decades. Take it off and reapply it and its adhesive properties will diminish. It just doesn't hold as well anymore. Keep taking it off and applying it and taking it off and applying it and I think you get the idea. And this can happen to a woman who has multiple sexual partners. And it has adverse consequences, and quite serious ones. 
A study is based on the uh, a study based on the National Survey of Family Growth, sponsored and funded by the United States Department of Health and Human Sciences, from a, a, from a nationally representative sample of roughly 10,000 women between the ages of 15 and 44, concluded. Early initiation of sexual activity and higher numbers of non-marital sex partners are linked to a in turn to a wide variety of negative life outcomes, including increased rates of infection with sexually transmitted diseases, which can cause, of course, infertility and in some diseases, fatalities, increased rates of out-of-marriage pregnancy and birth, increased single parenthood, decreased marital stability, increased maternal and child poverty, increased abortion, increased depression and decreased happiness. A girl, for example, who has underage sex is six times more likely to commit suicide than one who hasn't. Now, it's one thing to be aware of research findings which give a pretty good steer as to how we're meant to use our God-given sexuality. But if your experience has damaged your sense of self-worth, if you feel used, even abused, if experience and conscience combine together to make you feel you've made a mess of things and you feel rubbish, maybe even made you feel guilty, what can be done about it? Maybe you feel too bad for God for him to have any dealings with you. But if you think like that, you could not be more wrong. Look at this woman who we've just heard about and learn how she reacted to encountering Jesus Christ. So let's just get clear what Graham read to us. There is a Pharisee called Simon. He's a member of a very strict uh, sect of Judaism and they were particularly blind to their own self-righteousness. He's invited Jesus to dinner. Meals, hospitality are always a very good way to welcome people and also to get to know them. And then there's this unnamed woman with a reputation described as being a woman who lived a sinful life. She learned that Jesus was going to be there and so she pitched up. Now that makes it clear that this wasn't the first time she had heard Jesus. In fact, if we cross-reference Luke's account of this incident with Matthew's, we find that it had been preceded by Jesus doing a lot of public teaching, performing a number of very public miracles, and saying to the crowds in conclusion, when they've seen and heard what he's been saying, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So instead of rubbish, he offers rest. And that's what this woman is so pleased to hear about. She knows she's messed up. She knows she's in the wrong with God. She knows she's misused her God-given sexuality. And yet she knows that Jesus is willing to forgive and accept her. So she'd already heard about that offer. And she had turned and put her trust in him for forgiveness 
and for restoration. And now she is coming to express her love and gratitude to the one who has given her this, Jesus. Now a word of explanation, because otherwise the story is puzzling. Meals in the Middle East in those days would not have involved tables this high and chairs. The food and drink would have been on a low-level table, probably even a little bit lower than this coffee table here. And the guys, you know, we can... See, I put my left arm... No, I'll give up on that, that's not a good idea. Um, You put your left arm on that, and your legs go back almost 90 degrees, and you kind of relax there. So what would have happened was that, um, you know, the guy, Jesus, would have come in, the sandals would have been kicked off on arrival, and normally the household servant would uh, wash the feet, but that doesn't seem to have happened here, verse 44. The woman comes in with her uh, cask of perfume, goes behind Jesus, you know, he's facing this way, his feet are back there, and she washes his feet with her tears, wipes them with her long, dark hair, kissed them, and then poured perfume on them. Now, the Pharisees' motive in inviting Jesus to dinner is now revealed. He was trying to assess Jesus. He wanted to suss him out. He was, in fact, looking for evidence so that he would be able to reject this rather phenomenal person who's just pitched up. And he thinks he's found a flaw in this Nazarene rabbi and says to himself, in other words, he thinks it rather than says it, verse 39, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. So he thinks Jesus fails the omniscience test, the mind reading, the all-knowing test. He doesn't know what he ought to know. So he can dismiss him. And yet, Jesus clearly knows what Simon is thinking. You can tell that by the little story he tells him. There are two men and one moneylender. Neither man can repay their loans. One owes 500 denarii, which is equivalent to about 200 days' pay, and the other 50 denarii, which would be about 20 days' pay. That's a lot of money. The 200 days' pay was probably the value of that perfume she poured out, if other similar episodes are anything to go by. And both men are excused. In fact, the word used is forgiven their debts. Which man, Jesus says to Simon, is likely to be the most grateful and love him more? Simon, of course, gets it. He gets the right answer, as anybody would. Jesus then, for 44, contrasts the Pharisees' response to Jesus' miracles and teaching and identical invitation to the woman's response. She, Jesus says, has had her sins forgiven. Before she came to him, that happened. 
receipt of forgiveness precedes her expression of love for that forgiveness. But this is a public declaration by Jesus of what has gone on already. He can tell by her actions and a bit of omniscience. She has made a humble, contrite response to that offer of forgiveness and acceptance an invitation into a relationship with him. So let's now unpack the last three verses and see what they might mean for you, especially if you think that for any reason you might be too bad for Jesus. There are three verses and four part points. Verse 48, your sins are forgiven, Jesus declares. Second, who is this, the other guest asks, who even forgives sin? And Jesus again, your faith has saved you, and finally, go in peace. Now your sins are forgiven, verse 48. Yvonne Edwards was a PA to boardroom directors of some of the best-known companies in the city of London. She had, though, lived a life which parallels the girl I spoke of at the beginning and the woman that we've encountered this evening. She felt so rubbish about herself that she turned to drink. She even attempted suicide, and that landed her in the Priory, which is a private psychiatric hospital in southwest London, popular with celebs who need, like her, to be on the detox regime. But let her speak. She's in the Priory. I wasn't facing reality. I felt like Kate Moss. The grounds were lovely, the chef cooked for you whatever you wanted. I was sober. I didn't have an overwhelming urge to get alcohol. And by the Friday, I was bored. I was the only patient in there for the alcohol and drug program, and everyone else had gone home for the weekend. That weekend was the August bank holiday, 1995. And she remembers it well because that weekend was a turning point in her life, as she goes on to describe. I had been out for a walk in the grounds, thinking about life and about things I had heard about God in the past. I went back to my ensuite room and opened the bedside drawer, hoping to find a copy of Vogue or Cosmopolitan or Hello to flick through. Instead, all that was there was a Gideon's Bible. I picked it up opened it at random, and started reading. It was Luke's Gospel, chapter 7. I read from verse 36 to the end of the chapter. The impact on Yvonne was immediate. She continues, Suddenly I was overwhelmed with a sense of my own sinfulness before a holy God. It just came on me. As I read this account, I realized that my whole life had been lived in rebellion, running away from God. He had given me the gift of life and health and family and home, and I had done all but destroy it while ignoring him. This was my debt before God. But I also saw Jesus' love and forgiveness. I got down on my knees, and at the age of 35, for the first time, bowed my head to something bigger than me, and my ego with its pride and arrogance. I surrendered my will and my life to God. I said, I'm sorry, sorry for the terrible, sinful, rebellious, hedonistic life I've led. Please forgive me and help me. 
I was crying real tears. She knew there and then that God had answered her prayer. She writes, I had a strong sense of God's presence with me. It was as real as if I could see him. And I felt truly at peace, at peace with God and peace in myself. Until then, I'd never known peace apart from circumstances when all my ducks were in a row. Now I had true inner peace. I wasn't on any medication. I knew the experience was real, not drug-induced. When she woke up the next morning, the sense of God's presence was as strong as ever. And from that day, she writes, my alcohol problem was history. I haven't wanted or needed a drink since, and I don't even think about it. And 20 years on, she is overwhelmed by the love of God towards her, as she was uh, that night back in the Priory, when reading about a woman whose debt of sin had been wiped out by Jesus, she came to experience for herself the transforming power of Christ's forgiveness. The second point to learn. Who is this, the other guests begin to say among themselves, who even forgives sins? Now you might be so familiar with the fact that Jesus forgives sins that, you know, it just sweeps over you. Now, if you wrong me, I may forgive you. If I wrong you, you may be prepared to forgive me. But who is this third party, seemingly uninvolved with either of us, who speaks authoritatively and declares our wrongdoing forgiven? C.S. Lewis highlights this gobsmacking, uh, the gobsmacking implications of what Jesus is saying here when he writes in, Christian, in mere Christianity. Listen to what he says. One part of the claim tends to slip past us unnoticed because we have heard it so often that we no longer see what it amounts to. I mean the claim to forgive sins, any sins. Now unless the speaker is God, this is really so preposterous as to be comic. We can all understand how a man forgives offences against himself you tread on my toes and I forgive you. You steal my uh, money and, sorry, other way around. You tread on my toes and I forgive you. You steal my money and I forgive you. you the other way around, anyway, I've written it, <laughs> I've written it wrong. Um, but uh, what should we make of a man himself unrobed and untrodden on who announced that he forgave you for treading on other men's toes and stealing other men's money? C.S. Lewis says, asinine fatuity is the kindest description we should give of this conduct. And yet this is what Jesus did. He told people that their sins were forgiven and never waited to consult all the other people whom their sins had undoubtedly injured. He unhesitatingly behaved as if he was the party chiefly concerned, the party chiefly offended in all offences. This makes sense only if he really was the God whose laws are broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. In the mouth of any other speaker who is not God, these words would imply 
what I can only regard as a silliness and conceit unrivaled by any other character in history. Yet, and this is the strange, significant thing, even his enemies, when they read the Gospels, do not usually get the impression of silliness and conceit. Still less do unprejudiced readers. Christ says that he is humble and meek, and we believe him, not noticing that if he were merely a man, humility and meekness are the very last characteristics we could attribute to someone who says these things. The third point, your faith has saved you, verse 50. This is not the faith, not the facts of what Jesus has done in his death, life, uh, resurrection, ascension, so that our sins can be forgiven, but rather this is faith in the sense of this woman putting her trust in Jesus and what he has done for her. For her it has been the ring of truth. You can see it's real and that it works. She's discovered the hidden treasure, the pearl of great price. She has discovered salvation, welcome and acceptance by God himself. And lastly, in his final remark to her, he says simply, go in peace. I call on another favourite author of mine who is really who has been described as a latter-day C.S. Lewis, Tim Keller, to help us understand the biblical concept of shalom or peace. He writes, here's an illustration of shalom. If I threw a thousand threads onto the table, they wouldn't be a fabric. They'd just be threads laying on top of each other. Threads become a fabric when each one has been woven over, under, around, and through every other one. The more interdependent they are, the more beautiful they are. The more interwoven they are, the stronger and warmer they are. God made the world with billions of entities, but he didn't make them to be an aggregation. Rather, he made them to be in a beautiful, harmonious, knitted, webbed, webbed interdependent relationship with each other. And two examples might help further explain the concept. Physically, when your body is working properly, every part works with all the others. But if you have cancer, it means a part of your body is at odds with the others. You experience the unravelling of physical shalom. Or psychologically, your inner psyche has various parts, thoughts, feelings and reason. When they're working together, you experience inner shalom, peace. But when your feelings crave something that troubles your conscience, you experience guilt, which means you experience the unravelling of psychological shalom. Well, as I hope you can see and realise, in the coming to Christ, the rebellious, messed up, gets sorted out and we get put back together again 
to function as we're intended to function. That is what this woman who encountered Jesus discovered. And Christ is wanting anybody who feels that they have really messed up to come to him to discover forgiveness, love, acceptance, peace and restoration. Let us pray. Jesus said to her and to many others a few days before this incident, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Heavenly Father, we know that our consciences prick us. We know that we then have burdens that we carry around. And often the longer we leave it, the bigger the burden becomes. And we pray that should anybody be in that situation this evening, that they would identify with this offer that Jesus makes to unburden themselves to hand their uh, sins over to him and confess them and to receive his forgiveness and peace and life everlasting. Amen. Amen.